Welcome to Where RA Now, a podcast dedicated to catching up with former RAs and hearing where their journey of life has taken them since their glory days at New York University. My name is Ethan Romain, and I'm tonight's co-host, a junior from Cumberland, Maryland, studying film and TV and dramatic writing at Tisch, and an RA in Reuben Hall. Good evening, and I'm Tom Ellett, your other co-host, and I serve as the Senior Associate VP of Student Affairs. Welcome, Ethan. How is life going in your first week as an RA? Oh, it's going really great. Um, I had a great move-in day meeting all my residents. It was a lot of fun. I think it's going to be a really good year, really good haul. Yeah, I'm excited. No doubt it will be. Tell me a little bit. I hear that you uh, have a podcast yourself. Yeah, actually, me and another Ruben RA, he's on the 11th floor. His name is Logan Delgado. Uh, We have our own podcast. It is called Free Samples. Uh, It started on WNYU. And it's a podcast that kind of looks at the history of hip-hop, specifically through sampling um, and that practice in the genre. So how did you meet uh, Logan, and how did you begin the process for this particular subject for a podcast? Logan and I actually met during Welcome Week. We um, were both at a hip-hop hangout, which was you know one of the more low-key Welcome Week events. And we got to talking, and I asked him where he lived, and he said, Ruben. And I was like, oh, me too, what floor? And he said, 8. And I was like, oh, me too, what room? And he said, 810. And that's literally, I was in 809, so he was right next door. I actually told all my residents that uh, that story, story to try to get them to engage and make sure. Because it's a, I think we're like a good Welcome Week success story. Totally but, agree. Yeah. What was uh, a highlight from Welcome Week besides meeting a, a good friend along the way? For my Welcome Week, I really think that was the highlight looking back because I think I wasn't as engaged for the first really, you know, five days of Welcome Week. And then finally I kind of forced myself to get out there on Friday and then from that point on, like, he was really getting me engaged, and we went to a lot of events together, and he really got me to kind of get out of myself a little bit. So from then on, it was pretty cool. That's great. What are you looking forward to most this year in the RA role? The RA role? I think I'm really excited to just um, give residents that first-year Ruben experience that I had. Uh, I think coming from a small town, New York was kind of hard adjusting to, and Ruben was really the place for me that I could still feel like I was at home. So I'm really just excited to give my residents that same experience and try to, you know, pass that on and give back what Ruben gave to me. Outstanding. I appreciate it very much. Tell us about tonight. We have a great guest tonight. Yeah, we do. Today, our guest is Erica Tashwa, who served as an RA in Lafayette Hall for Tara Nakata and Napur Goyel during the 2007 to 2009 academic years. Welcome, Erica, and thank you for joining tonight's show. It's really a pleasure to have you on. Thank thank you, guys. I'm so excited to be here. Excellent. It's a real trip down memory lane right now. Well, we can't wait to hear the (laughs) memory lane, but how are you and where are you? I I do need to tell our audience, you're live in the studio. This is true. I am a real person physically in the same space as you, so that's very exciting. Only second (laughs) guest to do that. Wow. Um... Uh, No, I live here in New York still. I stayed in New York after I graduated in 2009. Um, I was in Tisch for film and television production. I continued writing and creating my own content in all of the years since I graduated. I also kind of deviated over into acting for a while, did that grind, still am somewhat doing that grind. Um, At this point in life, I'm primarily working as a screenwriter, director. Yeah, I've had a lot of side hustles in between all those things as well. And we'll unpack all of that. We will unpack every bit of it. (laughs) Awesome, so before we speak about your career as a screenwriter, director, and actor, uh, let's just speak for a second about your time at Washington Square. So 
When you were at NYU, were, were you involved in any extracurricular activities? Um, now I'm like, what did I do? I feel like film, uh, the film production program is such a full-time thing. I mean, every weekend you were shooting projects that I feel like outside of being an RA, I can't really remember if I was in other clubs. I just can only remember making films. Um, but yeah, I, th I think it was really just the RA thing and uh, going all in on film school. You know your friends who are in other clubs with you are gonna, gonna be I know. tweeting at you. I know, I was like, you, you forgot your involvement in all of these things. Guys, it's been a while, it's been a minute. Your mind gets a little foggy with time. So let's ask you the question, why the RA position? Mm -hmm. What was the impetus for wanting to be an RA? I feel like starting freshman year, I was, I knew that I wanted to be an RA. I had such, a fantastic time. I was in Weinstein freshman year. I have a lot of love for Weinstein. Uh, haters gonna hate, but Weinstein is my heart. Uh, I'm still friends with a lot of the people that were on my floor freshman year. So I think when you have that kind of really great experience and you see what that community can be, it's exciting to think of getting to facilitate that for other people. And I was really um, specifically wanting to be a freshman RA. So when I actually got offered the position at Lafayette, it was an initial like, oh, I don't know if that's what I want to do. It ended up being such a perfect fit, and I'm so glad that I ended up where I did. But I was definitely channeling those um, Weinstein vibes. Awesome. So uh, tell me a little bit more about what it was like to work specifically at Lafayette Hall as an RA. Yeah, it was cool. Um, I really loved the upperclassmen experience. I think, um, as I, I mentioned, being a film production major is kind of a full-time commitment. You're always in production. So I think working with upperclassmen was ultimately a much better schedule fit for me. I did have, oh, I guess I did have extracurriculars of jobs. I was, I had work studies throughout um, pretty much all three, three or four years I was doing work study jobs. And then I started working at the Apple store in the meatpacking district my senior year. So I was kind of juggling those things with school. I loved working with upperclassmen. I loved getting to, um, I was the facilitator for our hall council when I was at Lafayette, and that was a really fun part of my RA life. It was also a weird year at Lafayette where we actually had, I think about a hundred freshmen that were put into that dorm. So I actually did get a little taste of facilitating that freshman experience, which I had wanted to do as an RA in the first place, so. That was the overflow year, yeah. and Anita Farrington from uh, CAS at the time moved in and lived in the residence hall as well. Yes. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Uh, what about the relationships you had? So you were working with Hall mm -hmm. Council. Tell us a little bit about those relationships. How do they form, and do you still continue to be connected to any of those residents? What I really loved about working with Hall Council and the way that I was able to engage with the residents in that experience was it was actually kind of like using my directing muscles because when you're the RA overseeing hall council you don't want to take over hall council you don't want to be the one who's saying like no we have to do it this way so it was a lot of this kind of subtle steering and encouraging and finding an idea that somebody raised in a meeting and what's the seed of the really good thing that's in that idea that maybe I could highlight or nudge for the rest of the meeting to sort of uh, go in that direction. So it was a really fun way to hone my directing skills and be encouraging and empowering um, without taking over their experience because they were running the show there. My residents, I, I did um, uh, weekly milk and cookies. 
<laughs> the funny thing is I baked so much as an RA and I was intense. Like I had a Martha Stewart cookie book that was like not beginner recipes. These were next level gourmet cookies that I was busting out every single Sunday night. But since graduating, I have barely baked. I'm like so not into it anymore. Um, I got my fill. But it was really fun having that event and having a chance to connect with people um, on a weekly basis over some sweet treats. That's great. That's So that's really interesting because you said that you were kind of exercising your directing muscles mm-hmm. as the uh, hall council liaison. But would you say that you, there were other skills that you learned in your role as an RA? Yeah. I mean, I think it's so interesting now. I was actually... Um, was thinking, mulling over this as I was reflecting on my RA life ahead of this interview. And I think so many of the things that are in our popular conversation, thankfully right now, were um, concepts that I was introduced to long before they were in the zeitgeist as an RA. Just the concept of inclusive language, like uh, gender neutral pronouns, creating an environment where all are welcomed. I mean, I remember my first conversations of really hearing the phrases privilege or um, oppression used in terms of how institutions are built came out of conversations that we had in RA training. I remember um, the, there was, you're going to hate me for not remembering the details of this, but there was a big RA training event where we would go to all these different kind of modules or seminars that would happen. Um, And I remember attending a seminar that was about masculinity and it stuck with me so intensely. And to this day, I reference that lesson on like the complex nature of masculinity and how uh, we don't address the identities and roles that men are allowed to to inhabit in the world. And I just like remember all of these really interesting conversations that um, I was having because of my RA experience. That's great that you can remember so much of what you learned and, and take it into your life. Um, tell us a little bit about the whole idea of trying to balance uh, a career aspiration in the job. I, I mean, of RA, I really think about that as the students who are thinking about the next step. How, how did you manage that? Yeah, I think um, setting reasonable expectations for what you can do uh, is always important. Um, I, I'm a big fan of the whole like under promise over deliver in all things in life, like knowing your limits, knowing how to set them, knowing what you can and can't take on and kind of having the ability to um, schedule things. So lucky for me, because my extra assignment was hall council, that didn't really require a lot of work outside of attending the meetings. So that gave me more flexibility to be writing and producing my films and working my part time job and everything else that I was juggling at the time. So I definitely think you just have to be a little smart and strategic about what you take on. I know that people who want to be RAs are often the same people who are really ambitious and type A go-getters. And uh, we are often the people that want to do everything and want to take on everything. And um, a really good lesson that I've learned after school, but I think I was unconsciously kind of using at the time, is that when you say no to something, you're actually saying yes to something else. So having that kind of Um, discipline and how many extra projects you sign on for is important. Great advice. So were you always interested in film or, you know, directing? And and tell us a little bit about what inspired you and when you were inspired to really pursue that dream of film. Totally. Yeah, it definitely started really young for me. Um, The joke I sort of tell is that, you know, when I first saw uh, Twister, I really wanted to be like a 
meteorologist, and when I saw Apollo 13, I was going to work at NASA Mission Control, and when I saw Clueless, I was going to be a valley girl. Um, <laughs> and eventually I realized, like, oh, I actually don't want any of those professions. What I'm responding to is this experience, this feeling that I got watching these movies that I really loved in these worlds that they allowed me to inhabit and where my imagination was able to wander because of them. And I think that helped me connect the dots that being able to create those kind of worlds was really what I wanted to do. Um, I started making projects, I think this is true of so many filmmakers, that you have whatever your camcorder at home is and you start making things with that. I had discovered a free demo of Final Draft, uh, the screenwriting software, way long ago, back when it was like super easy to never pay for it, and you just use the demo forever and just save things, and uh, and it worked fine. So I was like writing screenplays just because I found the software online and finding scripts that I could read and exploring that. I was an only child. I think that definitely helped foster creativity when you have a lot of time by yourself. Um, you are your own entertainment. We also never had cable TV, so thanks to my parents for also forcing me to entertain myself on that front. Yeah, I, I totally feel you because I can remember as a kid, that was just me. Like every time I saw a new movie and every new movie I was into, that's like who I dressed up as for that week. <laughs> so it was like a pirate or, you know, whatever. Like, yeah, I can totally relate to that experience growing up. Well, it's been really awesome talking to you about your experience as an RA and how that kind of helps you with your career. Uh, we're going to take a short break, but when we come back, we're going to jump into that career and talk about what you're doing right now in the industry. We'll be right back. Hey, what's up? It's Keith Haskell here. Sorry to interrupt your amazing podcast, but I have something cool to plug. I'm part of a new public access show. It's called Chris Gethard Presents. Uh, it's on Manhattan Neighborhood Network. It's comedian Chris Gethard from uh, HBO and Broad City and many other awesome things invites a different comedian uh, to take over the show every single week. So I did episode two. My episode's called Fetch the Talk. Uh, if you just Google Chris Gethard Presents, you'll see all of it. Uh, we're live every Wednesday at 11. There's an audience, so, so come on down if you want to come and support it. It's cool. Welcome back, Erica and Ethan. We just heard about your experiences while you were at NYU. Now we're going to talk a little bit about what you've been doing since you left. You never really leave, though. You're always connected <laughs> to NYU. Especially when you stay in New York. You're yeah, like, it's right absolutely. there. <laughs> so let's start off. Maybe you can walk through the steps of graduation day. What was that feeling? And then kind of quickly moving through real world real world exists i think all four years you're in new york at nyu you know there's no gates yeah i mean you definitely i think nyu more than a lot of campuses that are bubbles um you you are in it transitioning to living in new york isn't that radical but it is a big shift um i moved out to greenpoint brooklyn which is still where i live um and i just remember like the overwhelming stress of lining up our apartment from our super shady realtor. We had a place that fell through the week before commencement. My parents were in town. This guy was showing us these insane apartments, telling us that we could put up walls here and there. And it was just this like nightmarish thing to find a place to live. So uh, enjoy having the residence hall while you do, because it is the Wild West out there. But yeah, I remember really navigating that. It was definitely, it's, it's it's a hard transition. I think when you go from a situation where your life is really structured and there's this external structure that's put onto you, finding a way to maintain that for yourself, especially for anybody who's trying to be a creative of any type, 
is one of the biggest challenges of creative life. Like you are your own boss, you set your own schedule for the most part. I had my part-time job at the Apple store, which I stayed at for longer than I'm proud of. I was there for seven and a half years, but I had healthcare and I only worked three days a week. And let me tell you, that is a valuable thing. Um, And for me, I liked having part-time jobs like that, that I just left. Like when I was done, when I was off the clock, I didn't take anything home with me. That meant that the other four days of the week were 100% mine. I completely owned my time. I treated it like office hours. Um, There have definitely been periods where I've been better at this and periods where I've been, you know, it's been more of a struggle. But I really um, try to always maintain a discipline that if I am not working at my J-O-B, I am working on my career. So that meant being out of my house so that I could write more effectively. I learned very quickly. Um, Again, anybody who's living a creative life or if you're trying to be a writer like Ethan, I'm looking at you right now, buddy. Uh, Kudos to those of you that can write and do that kind of work in your house. Like you're just way ahead and it's gonna be way easier for you. I think for most of us, that is not an easy thing to do. When you're home, it's like, my brain immediately goes to, I could nap on the couch. <laughs> the couch is right there. I could I could clean. I do what's called procrastinating, where you don't want to actually confront a difficult script you're working on. So, you know, that's a great time to totally reorganize your spice cabinet. Um, so, yeah, I think those first few years out of school, it was a lot of finding what are my rhythms, what are my routines, what is the, the structure that I can um, utilize. I took a lot of... Um, learning outside of my NYU experience, especially when I decided that I wanted to step over into acting. So I actually studied a bit at Atlantic Acting School, which is one of the studios that Tisch students can study at here. Um, I took improv classes at UCB and really fell in love with that community, made some of my best friends doing improv. Yeah, so I kind of had to find uh, other ways to continue learning, other ways to have that kind of structure that I was missing from school. Yeah, so going into that, because you were just talking about, um, which is something I can really relate to, kind of your process and how you make yourself focus on a project or a script. So tell me a little bit more about what your process is writing and when you get an idea or how you get that idea. And once you do, how you kind of carry that on to the next step. Yeah, you know, it's, it's a little different with every project. I think things come to you in different ways. So, um, the main script, this isn't a main script, I have, I have many projects right now, but um, there's a script that I've written, it's called Scattering Jake, and this is a project that I wrote to also direct. So currently, we're working on packaging that film, you know, finding financing, attaching name talent that can help us find financing, all of those fun things. Um, that script was a long process, even though it wasn't my first time getting to the words the end for a feature length script, I actually consider it my first script because it was the first one that was really like worth moving forward with. Um, writing feature length projects is a lot different than writing shorts. And I think that's one of the challenges of the film and TV program at Tisch is you really spend so much time in shorts learning how to tell a story that can exist for an hour and a half to two hours is just a different beast. And it took me a while to frankly, get good at that and figure that out. I had to work through some very bad drafts, a lot of struggles. I almost gave up on this script multiple times. Like there were points, you know, uh, where I was like, I don't think I'm ever going to figure this out. Um, So that one took a while. Now I have a script that we're, um, my manager in LA and I are starting to take out and that I'll be doing a bunch of meetings for. 
in October. That is a biopic um, written about the first woman in Congress, Jeanette Rankin. I went from outline to first draft in maybe three or four months, and I'm really happy with that first draft. And I think I was able to get there faster because of the years I spent laboring on this other project. Also, when you're adapting something from real life um, and you don't have to create all of the story yourself, that helps the process. So it's really different. Um, One thing I'll say, just to kind of piggyback off of this topic, I had to go through a lot of figuring out my process. And I think part of that is also figuring out and finding acceptance with where you are in that process. So much of life, so much of the arts is um, waiting for and hoping for success that's completely and absolutely out of your control and may or may not ever come. And I think that that's especially a difficult transition to make from you know, a school environment where success is really quantifiable and very like, not easily accessible, but like it's there for you. Like you can get, you know, teachers can shine praise on your projects. You can get little accolades in your, you know, small festival environments. Um, like you can, you can feel that tangible success. Um, when you're out in the real world, it's competitive, it's hard. You hear that a million times, but um, you have to find a way to focus on your process and the work you're creating regardless of outcome and regardless of seeking any kind of external validation for that work. And I think that was getting to a place where I could feel comfortable in that was probably the hardest thing. Now, you you're decided you were going to look at acting? Yeah. Directing? Mm-hmm. Writing? Yes. <laughs> did, did at any point in time, did that hurt or help you as you're trying to move forward. My question is really, are there too many buckets that people are thinking about or do they actually help you in some way to gain more clarity for self and project? It, it can go both ways. Okay. I have, um, there's a fantastic career coach that I actually worked with in another class. Again, keep learning after school. Um, her name is Betsy Capes and she runs this really fantastic class about goal setting and she frequently diagnoses people with multi-goal syndrome where you want to do too many things and therefore you don't make progress on the one um and i think that's true to an extent there was a period of time where when i was going really hard into acting i wasn't able to write as much i when i was doing improv shows that went until you know midnight and some weird basement bar in midtown it's really hard to wake up early and write in the morning if you're a productive morning person um so definitely there are, are points where those things can hurt one another, and, and I've had to reassess from time to time what my priority is. Right now I'm at a point where screenwriting is number one for me, and that's meant that I'm not pursuing acting as heavily. It's taken the back seat, and I'm completely okay with that. That being said, I do think that people who want to write and direct should consider having the experience of acting, having the experience of being in an audition room, receiving direction, going through that grind. It is so helpful and so valuable, and it makes you think about your characters in a different way because you know how an actor will be becoming those characters. And it completely transforms how you direct because you have the experience of knowing what kind of direction is helpful and productive and what is just useless nonsense. (laughs) <laughs> I think that's really interesting and that's really cool that, that you took that upon yourself. But speaking of, of acting, directing, writing, what 
just in, out of interest, what is the project that you've worked on that you really have looked at as the most valuable or your favorite project? Oh, that's like asking for a favorite <laughs> kid. I, yeah. I can't pick a favorite. Um, but I mean, as I mentioned, Scattering Jake was the one that I've been living with the longest. Um, it's gone through the most iterations. Um, so, and it's the project that I want to direct. I wrote it to be achievable as a first feature. So there's no outlandish production elements that make the budget, you know, soar <laughs> through the roof. Like it's designed to be a pretty contained film. Um, so Scattering Jake is about a young widow who finds out that her dead husband had knocked up her best friend. So uh, naturally she dumps his ashes down the kitchen sink. Uh, the problem is that she does that the night before she's supposed to go on a road trip to scatter those ashes with his family and with the woman who has his transplanted heart. Wow. So yeah, it follows that whole journey. Um, yeah, ultimately she has to find a way to make peace with her husband's family, her best friend, and through the woman who has his still beating heart, her dead husband. Wow. Yeah. That sounds really interesting and exciting <laughs> to see. Very so when, when you think about a project like this and where you visualize it being in the end, mm -hmm. what are the steps that you're taking to make that come alive? And being in New York, is that a good thing for screenwriters or with what's happening now? Or do you have to really be in LA? Great questions. Uh, I'll start with the process stuff. Um, like I said, I've gone through a lot of iterations. So actually the very first complete draft I did of this, I um, I, I think a great goal for, for new writers who are eligible to enter, which is anybody who hasn't made $25,000 writing, so that should be pretty much any new writer, um, is there's, a, there's an annual competition that the Academy is in, I'd like to thank the Academy, um, puts on called the Nickel Fellowships in Screenwriting. And so the deadline for that, the late deadline, is always like right around May 1st every year. So that's my biggest advice to people who are trying to write feature-length screenplays is give yourself the goal that every May 1st, you're going to have something to submit to the Nickel Fellowships. So I had that goal. I submitted the first draft of Scattering Jake, and it actually advanced, which is pretty cool. I mean, they only advance in the first round, I think, 300-something out of the 7,000-something scripts. Now, the subsequent drafts of it did not advance. Uh, so you go through this, like, constant, again, you can't judge yourself off of the external validation you're getting. You have to just stay focused on the work and have your process and your people. Um, so I've spent a long time getting that script to a point where I could really believe in it. Writing that stage is free. If you have, I mean, you need, a, you need a computer. That part's not free. But nowadays, everyone has something they can write. And you could write on paper, I guess, if you needed to. Um, that stage is free. Like, spend that time, as much of it as you can, like, getting your scripts right. Do it on the page. Figure it out. Perfect it because you really don't want to rush into making a project that you haven't completely figured out yet. Now, that being said, I, I think there is also the tendency to be too precious about things, hold on to them, and be, and be afraid to ever move forward. So it's finding that balance. But um, in my comedy work, I, I have a, a comedy writing partner I've created projects with. Um, she and I had made a, a web series where we acted in it. We were ghosts, and it's a very cute series, lifeafterseries.com. Um, and one of our big things with making that was like we've spent the time getting the script right and getting the jokes on the page. We have so many friends from the improv world who are much more 
like, oh, let's just shoot something. I kind of have like an idea of what it'll be and we'll just kind of like improv because we can do that and we're funny. And when you're on set, that's when you're spending the money. That's when like, it's difficult, it's time consuming. You're gonna be under a lot of stress. You don't wanna have to rely on figuring out your story or what's funny about it or your jokes when you're there in that moment. You wanna have something that you know works and then if you have time to riff on it, if you have time to do a funny take, like, great, you can. But, like, spend the time knowing that what you have on the page works. So that's the first part of developing a project like this, is getting to a point where a script is, you know, kind of ready to be seen. And so I started getting more and more accolades from screenwriting contests for Scattering Jake. Um, I started winning some of those contests. I um, have a producing partner that goes back to my... NYU days. Um, she's been involved with the project from the beginning, but we brought on another producer who had read it through a contest, loved the script so much, wanted to reach out, wanted to get involved. My management, which is out in LA, um, I'm working with uh, their MXN Entertainment. They rep Diablo Cody and really cool people that are super aspirational to me. So I feel very lucky to have um, my relationship with them. They found the script through its success in a competition. So that's kind of when I knew like, okay, again, you can't judge yourself off external validation, but you can kind of feel that you're getting somewhere with a project It's hitting that point. Um, from there with this kind of film, it's a matter of um, doing what's called packaging. So you have to kind of put together uh, the money, which usually doesn't want to come on board until there's something of value, which is typically a name actor. However, the name actors don't usually want to read the script until there's money. Mm -hmm. So you end up in this fun catch-22, which is, you know, what we're navigating right now. But I feel confident that we're making some really cool progress on that front. That's great. And last part? The L.A. part. There yes. So um, New York or L.A. I was so committed um, when I was in school. I was like, I'm moving to L.A. I know that I have to be in L.A. I'm moving to L.A. Uh, and I didn't for a number of, of life reasons. Um, and then my... Uh, husband at the time he was my boyfriend and I were almost gonna go and again we didn't um, for just a variety of personal uh, reasons I was kind of getting traction with acting at that point here and had a an acting manager here and I didn't want to uproot that and go to LA without anything you can do it here for sure but it definitely helps to have connections in LA there is definitely like a good industry here especially when it comes to really cool indie companies I think when you're a writer, there is actually kind of a an allure to being a New York screenwriter. When I do go out to LA and take meetings, people don't reschedule their meetings because they know I'm only out there for a brief period of time. Brilliant. And they also think that you're just edgy because you're from New York. And I don't think I'm edgy at all. And I don't think any like New York indie person thinks I'm edgy. They think I'm commercial. But in LA, it's like, oh, this cool. Yeah. <laughs> so it definitely is possible. Um, when I when I started working with my manager, I actually asked her like how she felt about me being in New York and she was unconcerned by it. She was like, yeah, no problem. I rep a bunch of people in New York. You know, if you're willing to go out there and take meetings, you can definitely make it work. That being said, I do think it's still primarily um, a Hollywood industry. It's still based out there. You do have to be prepared to get on a plane and go out there at least once a year. Great advice. Great advice. That's awesome. So just just wondering, so you you kind of have this really interesting path of of with some of your projects, just kind of going for it and taking it upon yourself to produce that content. And then with some of your projects, going more of the traditional route of having the content and then finding, you know, the path to get that to a more 
conventional production process. So, and I know Tom brought up kind of the changing tide of the industry with, you know, New York versus LA. So where do you kind of see the value in both kind of sides of the argument of we can go totally indie, we can make it ourselves if we have the content, or we should go the more traditional route, we should go through the studio, or be it an indie studio, whatever. Like, where do you kind of see that? Uh, It's kind of a question of budget level, honestly. Um, You know, when it comes to smaller projects, you know, shorts, web series, things in that scale, like, absolutely, you're not waiting for permission for those. Um, I think even, you know, there's a lot of people who are writing um, micro-budget films, so... Um, I had some friends in school that, like, right out, uh, I think right when they graduated, they made a feature that was one location, one room, real-time film. You know, if you write for those constraints in mind, you can certainly get something within the parameters of what you could raise money for on Kickstarter or Seed and Spark or any of those. Um, I'm, I'm a huge fan of creating your opportunities. I mean, I think so many times you're wishing that this person in a white horse is just gonna sweep in and open all these doors and introduce you to everyone in Hollywood and make your dreams come true. And maybe for some people that person exists, but for most of us, you have to be that person. You have to um, create opportunities. So I've done crowdfunding campaigns. The web series I made with my comedy partner, we raised over $20,000 through Kickstarter. That is a full-time job. Definitely, um, you can't launch one of those half-heartedly. You have to be prepared that if you're doing it, it is going to be your entire life, especially at that level. I mean, maybe if you're doing just a $2,000 raise, you can be a little bit more chill about it. But if you're trying to raise, you know, a more substantial amount, it's your full-time job. You have to believe enough in the project that you are willing to get on Facebook Messenger, I'm not kidding, and message every single person that you are friends with and like try as genuinely and earnestly as you can to reconnect with them and tell them why you're raising money for this project and why you believe in it and asking if they'd be willing to support it or share it. Like if you're not willing to do that for the project, then don't do a crowdfunding campaign because it's not something you can just launch, you know, hit go on the um, campaign site and expect that it's just going to magically uh, happen. It's really a lot of work, but it's cool that that tool exists. When I was in NYU, that didn't exist. When I had to raise money for my, you know, senior year advanced production film, it was truly like writing physical letters and sending like a physical little book out to family, friends, or people that I knew back in my hometown in Tennessee. <laughs> like, um, it's cool that, that stuff exists, but the technology is not a replacement for the hard work you have to put into it. Uh, I just shot two short films in the last month because I needed some new samples for my directing reel, and I wrote these to be super contained, like locations I had access to, two actors, you know, keep the drama in what's happening, not in the production elements, and for those, I just self-financed. They say don't do that, but you know what? If it's a small enough project and you need to make it, you pay for it yourself. Outstanding. Well, now we're going to transition to shout-out time. This is your chance to (laughs) shout-out those RA alums that you want to uh, maybe help for your next campaign, for your next... (laughs) (laughs) Who are the people I will be messaging asking for money? No, um, well, my my best, one of my best friends uh, was my co-RA my junior year at Lafayette. 
um, Charlotte Prevost. She lives in Paris now. She flew from Paris to Nashville, Tennessee to be at my wedding two years ago. And I just hung out with her uh, last weekend while she was here um, in New York visiting. So it's cool that like one of uh, my favorite people in the world came from my RA life. That's so cool. All right, time for speed round. Favorite tradition at NYU? Welcome week. Did you go abroad? I did. Uh, I was in Prague the summer between my sophomore and junior year. Best dining hall? At the time I was here, I think it was Kimmel. Favorite NYU professor? Oh, that's hard. Um, uh, Okay, well, I really loved um, Ezra Sachs and Barbara Malmet and so many others, and I'm sorry to name you all. I feel terrible. Did you have a part-time job while at NYU? I did. I had a work study um, for three years working at the Tisch Student Affairs office, and then I worked at the Apple Store. Ah, finally, what was your most memorable RA experience? One of my going above and beyond moments when I was an RA is I, um, I ran, um, I organized a viewing party for the 2008, oh, I'm aging myself, the 2008 presidential uh, elections. It was packed. I mean, we completely filled the common room at Lafayette. We were watching the returns come in. And I remember just what it felt like uh, when Obama got elected. And we were all just, I mean, most of us were, uh, you know, excitedly cheering and kind of like tears of joy and excitement. And that was just a really cool um, community moment to get to organize. Very different from eight years later. Uh, Yeah, we're in a different world now. Erica, thank you so much for spending time with Tom and I to discuss your journey and where your life after NYU has taken you. Thank you both for having me. So exciting to get to talk to you. As always, thanks to our listeners who can stay connected with RA alums who are living the Dream School alumni version of life. And special thanks to my engineer and executive director, Duncan Lemieux, and my executive producer, Shahara Ranasang and to the current professional staff and the alumni staff like Napur and Tara, who assisted these great RA alums in skill acquisition along the way. Erica, impressive, truly, what you're doing. It's inspiration, and I think it's so important for our current students to hear you have a goal, you have a plan, you have a process, and sharing it is really special, so thank you for doing so. Thank you so much. If you like tonight's show, look for more content on the newly unveiled NYU RA alumni website at where-ra-now.webflow.io, which lists RA favorite books, picks of all-time favorite RAs, alumni accomplishments, and ways to be mentored and get connected. Until next time, go out there and reach your dreams. Have a great night.